Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Harvard here with you. We've got a lot coming up in the program today. In just a few moments, Congressman Mark Pocan will be with us. He'll be taking your calls on whatever's on your mind. We can talk about the issues of the day, whatever you'd like. And a shocker, Tyson Foods wrote the draft of Donald Trump's order keeping meatpacking plants open during the great pandemic. Very strange stuff. More corruption from the Trump administration. But to start the program off, I did want to share with you my rant this morning from HartmanReport.com. It's titled, Republicans Learn to Promote Fascism at the Feet of a Master. And by the way, we're not talking about Donald Trump. In fact, arguably, we're talking about the guy that Trump learned from. Uh, Republicans this week are uh, sitting at the feet of Hungarian strongman Viktor Orban's. The CPAC conference is going on in Budapest right now. In two speeches this week, Orban laid out his Hungarian version of the racist American Great Replacement Theory. He trashed Jewish financier George Soros as a proxy for Jews around the world. He reiterated the importance of having friendly right-wing billionaires seize control of a nation's media. And he attracts societies that allow gay marriage and tolerate trans people as engaging in gender madness. Um, I, I think it's really important that people understand who Viktor Orban is and what he has done in Hungary. Um, his Fidesz party uh, and the Republican Party in many of our red states are virtually indistinguishable these days. Um, they're all using, you know, they all have cronies who own the local media. They have all packed their courts. They are all rigging elections through purging voters and gerrymandering. It's a different word for it in Hungary, but it's the same thing. And they're all putting polluting businesses in charge of their regulatory agencies or people from polluting businesses. Um, and now both of them have their set, sights set on the American federal government. By both of them, I'm talking about Viktor Orban in Hungary and the Republican Party in the United States. Yes, Orban is involving himself in American politics. Steve Bannon said that Orban was Trump before Trump. Uh, Casey Michael over at NBC News said, quote, from targeting migrants to inflaming an ethno-nationalist base, from attacking the press to whipping up nativist conspiracies, from ushering in unprecedented corruption to tearing down basic democratic protections, Trumpism is increasingly indistinguishable from Orbanism. 
I've been to Hungary. My my best friend Jerry Schneiderman and I were there back in '89, and and you know it just just before the wall fell, actually, um, and 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 that was the summer that Viktor Orban gave his first speech, calling on the Soviets to back down, and uh, and they did. By the way, I mean you know he was a hero for a while. He was 29 year old, first member of parliament. Um, by 2010, he was elected as prime minister, and now he's an oligarch himself. He's used his position to make himself fabulously wealthy and has transformed Hungary from a functioning democracy, which it was for uh, almost 20 years. Uh, and during that time, by the way, Hungary got European Union membership in 2004. They got NATO membership in, in uh, 1999. And now we've got an EU member, a NATO member, that is being run by an open fascist. His, his Fidesz party that uh, Orban took over was once, much like the Republican Party, it was a conservative party, but he ran on themes of, quote, restoring Christian purity and, quote, making Hungary great again. Yes, those were his themes. He had rallies all over the country that drew, draw thousands of people. He continues to do it. His first campaign was on building a wall across Hungary's southern border to keep out the Syrian refugees who were fleeing the Russian violence in Syria. He called them rats and, and rapists and murderers. Uh, sound uh, familiar? He altered his own nation's constitution to allow for gerrymandering and to allow election officials in, in districts that might not be favorable to him to openly suppress or even reject the votes of people who voted against him. He's packed the courts, just like Trump and, and McConnell did, uh, particularly uh, Hungary's equivalent of our Supreme Court. So thoroughly that even the most serious legal challenges go nowhere. Last year, they passed laws requiring conservative sex education in schools. In other words, gay is bad, abstinence only. He also passed a law forbidding the positive portrayal of LGBTQ people on television. In, a, in public campaigns, they've conflated homosexuality with pedophilia. And the latest anti-gay law passed by Hungary's parliament, passed by a, a vote of 157 to 1. This is how terrified the parliament is, or how all in they are with, uh, of and, and with uh, Orban. They, his party has railed against teaching multiracialism and racial tolerance. They re literally rewrote their elementary school books, just like they're doing in Florida right now. Uh, in this case, to proclaim that refugees entering the country are a threat because, quote, this is from one of the books, it can be problematic for different cultures to coexist. He's locked up refugee children in cages with the enthusiastic support of Hungarian white supremacists. The Helsinki Committee, you know, the international community said Hungary's, quote, indefinite detention of many vulnerable immigrants, including families with small children, is cruel and inhuman. It's a minor industry now in Hungary, locking up immigrants. And Orban responded by saying this, this influx of Syrian refugees seeking asylum, quote, poses a security risk and endangers the continent's Christian culture and identity. He added, immigration also brings increased crime, especially crimes against women, and lets in the virus of terrorism. Donald Trump much? Uh, I mean, it just it just goes on and on and on. I mean, they they the police stand by as as armed militias in Hungary, uh, in this case armed with torches, uh, marched into a Roma community, what used to be called the Gypsies, um, and said, "We will burn you out. We will set your homes on fire." They fled. 
Um, he is the, the head of his party, one of the founders of his party, Zolt Beyer, uh, said that they are animals unfit to live among the people. And, uh, you know, he's handed government contracts to a favored few. He's uh, elevated an entire class of pro-Orban small businessmen into multimillionaire and billionaire oligarchs. And the, the smaller businesses that are not on his side have been shut down, sold off, bought up. In some cases, those businessmen have even had to flee the country. All but the most marginal of the media in Hungary has now owned all the radio and television stations and the, and, the, and the television networks are now owned by oligarchs affiliated with Orban. In fact, they put billboards all around the country talking about what a patriot he is and what a wonderful man he is. Uh, they've got an entire social media campaign running Facebook and Twitter and all that kind of stuff um, talking about the wonders of Orban. When he was speaking to CPAC this week in Budapest, he said, quote, have your own media. It's the only way to point out the insanity of the progressive left. The problem is that Western media is adjusted to the leftist viewpoint. Those who taught reporters in universities already have progressive leftist principles. He said, of course, the GOP has its media allies, but they can't compete with the mainstream, mainstream liberal media. My friend Tucker Carlson is the only one who puts himself out there. His show is the most popular in America. What does it mean? It means programs like his should be broadcast day and night, as you might say, 24-7. Meanwhile, Vice News, Rolling Stone, Vox Media, and The New Yorker, along with The Guardian and the Associated Press, were all just kicked out of the CPAC conference. No, no press here. Sorry. Orban recently began dismantling the Hungarian Science Academy, replacing it with, with uh, quote, scientists who say that climate change is, this is a quote from Orban, quote, left-wing trickery made up by Barack Obama. I mean, this is, this is pretty grim stuff. He's uh, helped wannabe theocrats reinvent Christianity in Hungary, re you know, embracing hard-right movements within both the Catholic Church and pro among Protestant evangelicals. He recently reshaped Hungary's abortion laws, so it's extremely difficult to get an abortion, and you must have a man's signature to do so. Um, universities have literally fled Hungary, the Central European University, the first, um, because of growing threats against violence against them and bans on classes. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on. Women have been marginalized in Hungary since Orban came to power. He said. You know, uh, Hungarian power, po politics is built on continual character assassination, which women cannot endure. Therefore, women should not be in politics. Well, uh, the, the Guardian noted a couple of years ago, Orban's Fidesz party and its coalition partners, the Christian Democrats, have 133 members of parliament. Between them, only 11 of them are women. He's ruthlessly using his nation's diplomatic and criminal justice systems to aid foreign, corrupt foreign oligarchs. Uh, he's got his own versions of Bill Barr and Mike Pompeo. He's the only leader in the European Union to endorse or at least fail to condemn Putin's attack of, his, of Ukraine. He said, quote, I don't want to get between the Ukrainian anvil and the Russian sledgehammer. Right. And he refuses to participate in the EU uh, boycotts of Russian fossil fuels. He has now largely crushed dissent in Hungary arresting opposition politicians, troublemakers, and members of the independent press, much to the delight of American Republicans who want to do the same here. For example, this is from Vox News, quote, 
At dawn on a Tuesday in May, the police took a man named Andras from his home in northeastern Hungary. His crime? Writing a Facebook post that called the country's prime minister, Viktor Orban, a dictator. And now his hard right party is reaching out to white supremacist parties across Europe and obviously to the United States. He's hosting CPAC right now, which all raises the question. Since Orban has recently started going down the road of banning books and, and talking about critical race theory in Hungary, and Americans are starting to follow his example, is the, the question is, are Republicans teaching Orban or is Orban teaching Republicans? I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think the real answer to this question is Vladimir Putin is teaching them both. So your thoughts on that, stick around. Congressman Pokian, it's always nice to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us. What's on your mind today? What is at the top of your agenda? I'll tell you, it was just, it, we were in D.C. this week. I got back uh, last night to Wisconsin, where I'm at now. But, you know, we had bills, you know, trying to address the uh, issues of price gouging on gasoline, uh, trying to address uh, formula for babies. And, you know, Republicans are just so incalcitrant in trying to do anything with us because they see it all as about the election. I understand they almost all voted against formula for babies. I mean, honest to God, every Republican in the House of Representatives, except what, about six or eight of them, voted think, against uh, formula for babies? I, yeah, I, I thought you kissed babies when you're a politician. I didn't think you starved them. Well, unless Donald Trump tells you not to, that, that's the problem. The modern Democrat or Republican Party doesn't do things like the Republican Party used to. They, they do what their leader, their cult leader says, and that's Donald Trump. But on top of the very busy week we had uh, legislatively, we also saw Donald Trump lose in a few elections this week and or, or have some very potential near losses, what we're going to find out in Pennsylvania. But, you know, some extremists came through and he lost in some areas. And, you know, I think uh, for progressives, we had a pretty good night short of North Carolina. Uh, you know, Summer Lee looks like she's going to win the, the seat in Pennsylvania. Uh, I think three and a half million was spent by APAC against her. Uh, a big failure for big money in Oregon. Uh, Andrea Salinas won in an open seat and she had $12 million from a crypto uh, billionaire uh, put against her for someone and she beat that back. And so it was a good night for not only progressive candidates, but beating back some of this really big um, ugly money that's been coming into uh, elections and primaries. That's a fine thing. That's an absolutely fine thing. Anything else you want to share or shall we start picking up calls? The, the board is filling up quickly. I would be glad to take calls because I know that you'll have a, a lot of good questions. Okay, up. let's do it. Let's start with uh, Jeremiah in Coalport, Pennsylvania. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, Congressman. People call in on a regular basis to say how bad Democrats are at messaging. The recent Republican thing is to try to label Democrats as pedophiles. When the Republican Party has actual pedophiles like Matt Gates and Donald Trump, why are we not calling them pedophiles? Yeah, Jeremiah, in general, I, I've said many times, Republicans are good at talking in headlines and Democrats talk in paragraphs, right? So I accept that we've got some messaging difficulty sometimes on Democratic side. We like to talk policy. In this particular case, this is the Q element. This isn't the average Republican who believes any of this pedophile crap. This is the Q element that believes this. 
And if we then fall and talk for this this talking point that appeals to a very small amount of their folks, I, I think we're just missing what we should be talking about. Republicans are doing nothing to stop the price gouging that oil companies and these this consolidation and meatpacking you're I think you're going to talk about later in your program that's going on. They'll do nothing to stop uh, the issues that are trying to that we're working on to try to deal with the formula issue. There were some mistakes made by the FDA. There's no question in that. Um, but again, much of that is because of monopoly, and there's nothing Republicans will ever do around that. We just need to talk about things that people are actually talking about. The average person doesn't fall for that crap uh, that the QAnon does. So I don't necessarily want to jump down that hole. I don't think it serves us especially well. And yet that kind of language historically has preceded things like genocide and repressive laws. Although in this case, I mean, there there's Republicans speaking out yeah. Katie would be our champion, but she's been very helpful. Okay. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Jeff in San Francisco, you are on the air with Congressman Pokian. Yeah, I was wondering, when, why don't you and your 100, 100 progressives go down and, and fight with uh, for Cisneros down in Texas? And also back, um, AOC is going after that. Maloney is going after Mondaire Jones. You guys need to back the progressives now, you know. Yeah, Jeff, we, that was stop you right off the bat because uh, uh, people are. But, you know, if HuffPost doesn't want to write about anyone but one or two members of Congress because that's what HuffPost too often does. That's all you hear. But there are plenty of people talking about in New York, for example, uh, the fact that the chair of the D-Trip is going to run in a different district against challenge a progressive uh, in Mondaire Jones because he uh, just wants to because he doesn't want to take the district that he had that's a two points less Democratic. Uh, we, we've all spoken out and said he shouldn't be the chair of the D-Trip if that happens. Um, and many people have said that. So the fact you read one story on HuffPost, I understand what you're saying, Jeff. But many people have said that, and on Cisneros, a number of people have got in. Many people uh, don't get involved against incumbents. 
doesn't matter where the political spectrum is. It's someone you have to serve with so people don't uh, endorse on that. So that one is, is kind of a different issue. But nonetheless, there are members uh, who have gotten involved on that race, including uh, Pramila Jayapal uh, personally has. I believe Jan Schakowsky has. I believe um, Marie Newman has. So I just, you know, I do give a little pushback because sometimes people follow a news source or two and want to always say only this member is doing the right thing. And there are many progressives who are doing the right thing on many of these races and many of these issues. And uh, I, I just sometimes am frustrated as, as, as I am sometimes with the mainstream media doesn't cover things unless it's just conflict. Sometimes certain media sources only cover certain names that are clickbait. Uh, and in reality, I'm going to stand up for progressives in general because many of them have said many of the things that I just mentioned. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This book in the Tom Hartman Book Club is All Politics is Local, Why Progressives Must Fight for the States by Megan Winter. And this is from the introduction. On February 20, 2018, six days after 17 people were shot and killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, Representative Keon McGee, a Democrat from Miami, stood on the floor of the Florida House of Representatives. Looking on from the gallery above were Parkland students who had traveled over 400 miles by bus to Tallahassee with the hope of persuading their state lawmakers to pass gun reforms in Florida. McGee asked the assembly to vote on a bill that would have banned assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith of Orlando, where a gunman had killed 49 and wounded another 53 people in the Pulse nightclub in 2016, had sponsored the bill, whose chances would expire unless the House bent its usual protocol and acted right at that moment. The shooting at Parkland demands extraordinary action, McGee told the assembly. He was trying a technical procedural maneuver, one that might have worked in an alternate reality without partisan politics. But everyone who understood what it meant that Republicans held a supermajority in the Florida Assembly knew what would come next. Richard Corcoran, the Republican Speaker of the House, interrupted McGee. A few minutes later, the House voted on a party lines, 71 to 36, not to consider the assault weapons ban. In the gallery, students began to cry. On Twitter, student leader Emma Gonzalez wrote, the anger that I feel right now is indescribable. Something unusual was happening. With their eloquence, temerity, and rage, the Parkland students had seized national attention. Major news networks and papers dispatched reporters to cover their calls for change. That week in February, even before knowing that hundreds of thousands of students nationwide would soon walk out of their schools and through the streets, the American public paid attention to what was happening in Tallahassee, Florida. And yet from another advantage, the scene in the Florida Capitol that day was not at all unusual. In state houses, it is not uncommon to watch someone sit before a panel of elected officials, hold up a placard of a dead child killed by opioids or lack of insurance or a gun, and plead for the passage of a bill that will inevitably not move out of committee because it does not fit within the political calculus of the Assembly's leadership. In those hearing rooms, ordinary people often share in breathtaking impotence. Three weeks before the Parkland students arrived in Tallahassee, for example, the Florida Senate Judiciary Committee discussed the Rule of Law Adherence Act, which would have required all local government officials, explicitly including employees of the state university system, to turn over information about immigrants to federal immigration officials. The bill was similar to those shopped around the country by the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, an organization that since the 1970s has written experimental conservative state legislation. 
Alec's corporate members included Geo Group, the largest provider of detention services for Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, and a major donor to Florida Republicans in Donald Trump's presidential campaign. In 2016, the federal government decided to stop contracting with private prisons because the Department of Justice investigation had found they were unsafe. But after Trump's inauguration in early 2017, GeoGroup received $774 million worth of contracts to run federal prisons. On January 30th, 2018, the day that the Florida immigration bill was considered in Tallahassee, so many people showed up that the hearing room reached capacity. Muslim students and Latino farm workers and their teenage children who had traveled hours to testify against the bill were not allowed into the packed room. Expressionless, they watched the proceedings on a television mounted in a hallway as Florida Senator Aaron Bean stood at the podium and said that his bill means criminals will be kept off the streets. The bill did not advance in what counts as a victory, in part because in 2011, immigrant rights groups staged weeks-long protests in Tallahassee to oppose a bill modeled after the Arizona's 2010 law that allowed police officers to ask for immigration papers if they suspected someone was undocumented. The Florida legislature didn't pass a new aggressive anti-immigration law until 2019 when it gave the state the power to sue local law enforcement that refused to detain people according to orders from federal immigration officials. The next day, January 31st, Floridians concerned about sea level rise arrived in Tallahassee by the busload to ask their legislators to pass a raft of proactive climate change bills. Many were college students or recent graduates who had grown up along the coast and understood that the window of opportunity for stalling climate change was rapidly closing. During their lifetimes, they told me, their hometowns would be radically altered, if not sunken. By the end of the legislative session that March, none of the bills they wanted were passed. Even though just 10 years ago, it was all but mandatory for both Democrats and Republicans in Florida to at least make overtures about the need for proactive environmental laws. Similar scenes play out in hearing rooms across the country, usually unrecognized by the American public. Beneath the tumult of the Trump presidency, state lawmakers have largely kept their course. As Alec's own website explained in 2017, quote, state legislatures around the country have made significant progress passing bills on issues such as immigration, policing, and health care, even as Republicans in Congress and President Trump have struggled to make similar progress at the federal level, end of quote. After decades of state-based campaigns coordinated by libertarian and Republican operatives and disinvestment in the states, right-wing politicians have swept control of state houses. All politics is local. David in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, David, thanks for listening to WGRN. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello, Congressman. My big question is, how do you cut defense spending during uh, periods of war? I mean, the uh, defense industries in um, uh, are the big winners here, and we, we need this money for um, domestic uh, spending, and we need to cut um, DOD's um, use of uh, fossil fuels. Yeah, David, I'll tell you, you bring up a, a very, very good point, because as you know, Barbara Lee and I started a caucus with the intention of trying to cut the Pentagon's budget. Uh, you know, so much of it is wasted. There's no audits that they ever have to adhere to like every other agency. But I think one area that could work with us is with a, a simple language change, you could more broadly use defense funds for things that actually stand up for the national security that aren't defense contractors. Uh, and I would argue, and I've asked this of Dr. Fauci, of Dr. Ja, of the head of the NIH, they've all said COVID was a national security threat. Well, then why can't we use more defense 
department dollars to fight that national security threat and to have in reserve more of the supplies should we have another pandemic. I would argue climate change is a national security threat. I would argue cyber attacks are a national security threat. So if we could just uh, go after that definitional change, uh, we might be able to redirect some of those dollars that go towards you know, things like F-35s that still have over 800 deficiencies and don't operate very well, and instead put them towards a, a more modern definition of defense. So David, you're right, it's hard given what's happening in Ukraine uh, and other ways to actually cut the dollars outright, but if we could find a way to really focus on a true defense, a definition of national security, I think then we could uh, really see fewer dollars go towards weapons of war and more dollars go towards actually defending this nation. That is absolutely brilliant. Are, 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 do you think there, there's a good possibility of, of this happening? We are trying very hard. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's five words, arguably, where the money can only go to a state and non-state actor, that if it were slightly changed, uh, we would have a broader ability. But again, as everything in Congress, Tom, there's a rule and then there's all the exceptions to the rule. Right. Like we, we fund breast cancer research right now with the Department of Defense dollars because there are uh, female members of the military. So, but defense doesn't like to go outside their little realm and that little realm usually is defense contractor dollars. I think, especially with what we've just gone through through COVID, uh, we can make a very strong case and I think that's where we should be putting our attention. Very impressive. Patty in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. My question is, how do we remain optimistic when democracy hangs by a thread and there's not any demonstrations against the, the, the right. How do we remain optimistic was your question. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Patty. Yeah, Patty, I mean, we, we have to, right? You know, whenever we see some of this really bad stuff happening, remember this. People agree with values of progressive and we have more people. Where they win is when they have big money come in and, and influence things, where they get creative and convince people not to come out and vote. But if we just keep doing the fight that we're doing, people agree with us and our values. So we just have to keep at it. And when we see where they come at us with money, like what happened on Tuesday, we beat it back in, in, the, in different states, in the polling places. That was a very positive sign. And uh, it's just gonna take us continuing to fight hard because uh, many of the things we wanna get done, we're not quite able to do, but we're gonna get there. It's just, we gotta keep fighting towards those goals. People are with us, just remember that. Stephen in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, thank you, gentlemen. Say, I'd like to ask what your take is, Mark, on uh, the Republicans' affinity with Viktor Orban in Hungary. It seems to me this is another attempt to plan something in the near future similar to what he's done to that crappy country. Yeah, well, I mean, let's face it, the modern Republican Party, as I've said many times, is not a political party anymore. It's a cult of an individual, and they love autocrats. Uh, and they love autocrats who, uh, even like Vladimir Putin, who they have such an affection for, who doesn't like uh, gays and lesbians and doesn't like uh, different types of people because that falls within their political discourse for their most extreme elements of their party, which are now the ones who run things. So, you know, whenever you have a, an autocrat out there, uh, they're going to sign up to back that person because that's how they currently think. They want Donald Trump to have the same powers as says some of these other autocrats in other parts of the world. Of course, we don't. Uh, the average person doesn't. But that's the only way they can take an agenda that isn't popular and try to make it actually become the law of the land. Yeah. Uh, whoop, hang on just a second here. Leslie in Pine Mountain, California, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. 
Yes, good morning. Um, I would like to know what Congress is doing about uh, Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico becoming a state. Uh, Leslie, I believe something is going to be announced next week. There's been a compromise, and that's all I can say um, because I haven't been part of the compromise, but there were a couple different groups of people, some who wanted statehood, some who wanted independence. From what I understand, uh, and talking to one of the people that was at the table of the negotiation, there's a compromise reach that has all support, and hopefully we'll be able to move forward on something that is long overdue. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. John in New York City. John, you are on the air with Representative Pocan. Yeah, hi. You know, I'm a Democrat, but my frustration is that the Democrats don't fight. I mean, they, they don't have the same fight that the Republicans have. And another thing, the abortion issue, it's a simple message would be comparing the Republicans' issue on abortion to a, a guy who gets a woman pregnant, leaves her with no money, and brags about it. You know, so it's just to bring out a common factor that people could relate to. Yeah. So on the second part, John, I know I, I hear you. And that's why I think 65 or so percent, uh, I believe Roe versus Wade should remain legal. And that will be an important issue for us. Absolutely. Going into November on the fight issue, you know, I agree and I don't agree. And let me explain why I'm saying it that way. One is there are a lot of people who are fighting on stuff, but if the, the media doesn't cover it, you'll never know about it, right? And that's a frustration for many of us who, you know, we've had rallies, we work with outside groups, we do all this, and if they don't cover it, you wouldn't know it happened. However, I do think at the presidential level, um, and I've said this to the White House, so it's not something I'm not I'm saying behind their back, I wish they had a little greater fight. I think they need to take out oil executive and flog them in front of public, right? And let them know about the price gouging that's going on and pull in this, this consolidation and meatpacking industry where we just saw they lied about keeping uh, things open because of fake shortages during COVID. And they put a lot of people's health at risk. We need to go after those folks. And that has to happen from the very top because the bully pulpit that the president has is, a, is more than a thousand times what any member of Congress would have in getting that message out. And uh, so I agree. That is a level that I think more fight has to happen because, you know, Joe Biden is clearly not responsible for inflation in the European Union, right? Uh, and, and across the globe. And yet their argument is it's all Joe Biden's fault. You know, if we had greater fight there and showed the problem uh, in a very public way, maybe in a fireside speech to take on these interests, I do think that would serve us better than what we're doing right now. Lisa in Newark, Delaware, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi there. Last week, when I heard about CPAC going to Hungary 
and honoring Victor Orban, I just wanted to scream. I want to know how concerned are you and fellow Democrats about fascism in this country and what can we do about it? Yeah, absolutely concerned, um, especially since the Republican Party has basically given up the keys to being a political party and is really a, a cult of a figure, Donald Trump, and, and in some ways even beyond Donald Trump. I, I just saw uh, some stuff this morning, Mass and Cawthorn now is going to exact revenge on people who didn't have his back in uh, talking about dark MAGA. Well, you know, if MAGA wasn't already fascist enough, dark MAGA, you know, is going to be even worse. And yeah, I just think once you open this door for all of these bigots and racists and others uh, to be able to be more public about their feelings, uh, it's only going to get worse. And the best way we fight that back is realizing things like what the Supreme Court could do around Roe versus Wade and other freedoms that we could lose. We've got to take uh, this November extremely seriously and do everything we can to make sure that uh, those forces don't continue to have any progress. And, you know, it's a tough year because of inflation, because of uh, the COVID hangover. You know, we're fighting a lot of headwinds. All the more, if we care about our freedoms, uh, we have to get out there and be very, very active. John in Seal Beach, California. Hey, John, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, good morning. Uh, Congressman, I'm curious to know if there's any kind of law or rule that you guys are talking about in Congress to uh, have candidates in future elections uh, show 10 years or so of their tax returns. Well, I know that was a huge issue, and I haven't heard anything lately. Yeah, you're right, John. I haven't heard a lot about it lately either. Um, and I suppose there there's ways we can, because clearly that's required in some cases, like for presidential candidates. But, um, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do, and I think could happen this year, Tom, is, uh, you know, this issue around the stock purchases that I think many people, rightfully so, are concerned. I'll tell you, as a member of Congress, without question, I get things that I would consider inside information, because I'm talking to so many people, I'm talking to companies, we're dealing with federal agencies, members of Congress shouldn't be able to just outright buy individual stocks. And I think there are some moves afoot to address that. Um, and that's uh, really important. And I think that would help get to some of what, you know, John's bringing up because, um, you know, we want to know where people's financial interests are so we know that they're actually governing for the right reasons. Seems like a, seems like a plan. Linda in Portland, Maine, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good afternoon. Um, I was upset that the Progressive Caucus supported uh, Chantel Brown, who's clearly not a um, progressive and didn't support Nina Turner, who clearly is a supporter of uh, progressive. So I was calling to ask if the congressman can explain the caucus's reasons for supporting Brown and if there was a vote. And, you know, it's been kind of controversial. So um, that was my question. Thank you. Sure, Linda. So I've done it before, so let me just do it real briefly. Um, Chantel is a progressive. If you look at Progressive Punch that rates our voting records, she has the 11th most progressive vote right now in Congress, right behind me, actually. Uh, so, um, you know, it's not fair to say she's not. She had some people putting money in her campaign that I would love to take out of the business of what they're doing. Um, and I've got opinion on that on multiple fronts. Um, but uh, she was a member of good standing. And if they're endorsing the bills, that we require of all members in voting the way they're supposed to, which is a percent of the votes with members. Uh, that's why she got the endorsement. Prior, we had endorsed Nina. I'm a big fan of Nina, and I enjoyed going around the country with her. But it's not fair to say just because if you like Nina, and I truly do like Nina, that the other person can't be progressive. 
the reality is, yes, you can. And sometimes that happens in races where there's multiple progressive candidates. Sort of a, a, a profusion of blessings, I suppose. Alina in Redmond, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, uh, hello. Thank you for taking my call. I have this idea about maybe having another Freedom Summer, the summer to, to mobilize voters like red states. Like I think Georgia is number one in that regard to get uh, Stacey Abrams as governor and reelect Raphael Warnock to the Senate. And my son really wants to volunteer, just go there and uh, register voters and do what's necessary. But I can't find, I've, I've been looking online for weeks, I can't find a group that does this or, you know, helps like to find housing for the, for people like that and, you know, maybe, you know, give them like a like a food allowance or something like that. If, if this election is so important, why isn't the Democratic Party doing anything like this or some big groups? I just not see anything. Everybody's asking for money, but nobody's asking for volunteers on the ground. Yeah, Linus, I know there are a number of efforts, uh, and sometimes it depends by the state on this. One national effort, uh, Jamie Raskin had started a program called Democracy Summer, uh, you know, with working with youth to go out and work on campaigns, and it's very organized now, and they're doing it in many uh, parts across the country. Um, so maybe Google that. I don't have the direct information on how to get there, but um, uh, Jamie Raskin in Democracy Summer, that's just one I know. But there are plenty of efforts like that. But you're right, that's what we need. We have to get voters out. We know they agree with us on the issues, but if they don't come out and vote, then it's just like uh, you know one more vote really for the Republicans. I saw a uh, statistic, and uh, apologies for not remembering where, I read so many newspapers every day, um, but it's, uh, you know, it was, it was like one of the mainstream, you know, Times, uh, Post, uh, Financial Times, something like that, that was looking state by state. And, and uh, in most states, it seems like 18-year-olds are registered at rates between like 11 and 16 percent. I mean, really, really, really low rates of voter registration. Um, I, in, in most countries, most advanced democracies, you are automatically registered to vote as soon as you turn voting age, which is typically 18, just automatic. It, it follows your birth certificate. Um, is there any effort to do anything like that in the United States? Yes, in fact, I believe, and I could be wrong on this, Tom, but if it's not HR1, I know there is legislation introduced to do that through the Department of Motor Vehicles. So it would be kind of auto, as automatic almost as your, your licenses, which would affect most people. Right. Um, also, to your point, the single greatest indicator of whether or not someone's gonna be a voter is by age for a group. Uh, the, the folks who are the oldest in this country vote at the highest percent. The folks who are youngest vote at the lowest percent. If you want to have a seat at the table where decisions are made, more young people need to get out and vote. But uh, that would be one way to do it because it would impact the largest amount of people to make sure they're automatically registered. Yeah, amen. Cheryl in Studio City, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for providing the service. Um, well, it, it kind of in line with what was said before about voter enthusiasm and about policy and even what this woman just said right now, I, my question is going to be to you, what do you as representatives perceive the downside of calling a spade a spade? When the, when the fire department shows up at a burning house, they don't negotiate with the fire. They don't say, you know, it's best if you just stay in the fireplace. They extinguish it. And so... It seems to me, I don't see the problem with saying it's interesting that a party who's pointing fingers at us for being pedophiles is actually supporting, um, you know, alleged pedophiles. 
I don't I don't understand what you think the problem with that. I used to be someone who said talk about policy, talk about policy. I think you and uh, you as a body, Congress, and also Joe Biden are out of touch now with act- what's actually going on in terms of what's getting through to create enthusiasm in the base, to yes. make sure people get out and vote. You're not being sure. you don't appear strong. Yeah, no, I hear you, Cheryl. I, I, I think there's many fair arguments out there. I don't think this is the strongest. My guess, and I can't say this because I've seen a poll, but if you asked what's motivating people to vote Republican, the issue of this fake issue of pedophiles would probably come in about 15th or 12th. Uh, it's just not the biggest issue that's out there. Most people have a COVID hangover. Most people are paying too much for gas or for uh, groceries. Those are the issues that are hurting us the most. And then when you look at the issue of Roe versus Wade, that's one of the biggest, that just as of last week, tied the economy is the biggest issue was Roe versus Wade. But pedophiles isn't showing up on there. So that appeals to the, the few of these fringy Q folks, but real people don't believe it because it's such a, a fringe issue. So hopefully someday someone will throw that in the list, but every issue I look at, that's the main issue that people are looking at, it's either the economy or Roe versus Wade. Those are the biggest two by far, and then they go down from there. So I'm not saying you don't have to respond to it, but the more you respond to their fringe arguments, they do that for a reason, so that you don't talk about people losing their personal freedoms when when Roe versus Wade is attacked. And don't forget, in that same memo, it talked about marriage equality. That means everyone who, who's uh, married to a man or a woman who's, who is a man uh, or a woman also could be uh, at risk. Those, I think, are the issues that we're seeing based on the polling really moves people. So uh, again, um, not disagreeing that you shouldn't uh, you know, respond back, but I don't think those are the issues right now we're seeing moving voters. Eric in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, you are on the air with Representative Pocan. Good afternoon, Tom and Congressman Pocan. My question, um, being that the military-industrial complex wields so much power, right, and whenever Congress, Biden administration, when their funding comes up for the uh, military, right, there's no opposition pretty much on either side. Is it possible that along with that you could put, like, something from the um, – you know, progressive ideas like the Build Back Better plan, if not all of them, like parts of it, I don't know if you would call it an omnibus bill to say, well, okay, we'll put this through, but we want this with it. Is that at all possible? That's my question. Yeah, so there are some bills that are a little broader and more generic, like our omnibus, because the budget process generally doesn't pass the way it, it appears on Saturday morning cartoons with you know the 12 appropriation bills going through both house and being signed into law. And that's where just about anything can be there. And there are some bills where things get added on. However, defense is not always one of those. I do wanna push back though a little because when we've tried to add a 10% cut, we got over 90 members of Congress. Now again, you need 218 to pass something, but there were 90 plus members of Congress who wanted to cut the budget 10%. Um, so it's, it's not true that it just automatically goes through. The problem really is, Eric, is that it has become a jobs program. I don't think people look at defense budget as money that's going to our national defense as much as it goes to people in their district, contractors in their district, constituents in their district through jobs. And that's part of the problem. You know, We can't just fund things, even if they're bad programs, but people look at it as the jobs in their district. And that's why you know, we've talked about trying to have a more modern definition of defense, because I, I think it's more likely we could redirect dollars than necessarily cut dollars for that reason of the jobs issue. And uh, it absolutely is necessary. But there are plenty of people who do work towards that. It's just, you know, it often becomes difficult 
because it becomes a district issue and jobs in your district. We just have 20 seconds. This goes back to, I believe it was in the 1970s or 80s when the defense department or these various defense contractors kind of got together and said, let's make sure every single district in a congressional district in America has a defense plant in it. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have a company that makes a product as big as my pinky that goes on submarines. And every year they ask me to buy more submarines than the Department of Defense requests. Um, that's <laughs> the problem. It's a jobs program. For me, I don't have as big of a footprint. For some people, the footprint's quite large. And I understand the pressure. The problem is, you know, we don't even audit the Pentagon. It's, it's often your responsibility. Yeah, there you go. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Donna in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Donna, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, uh, Mark, just letting you know, I'm in Arizona now, but originally from Beaver Dam. Um, and my my question is uh, for you, Kenny, the uh, Indian reservations provide health care to women. Uh, I know the governor of Oklahoma, uh, uh, Indian reservations are about the eastern half of Oklahoma. He's already told them, don't even think about this. So is that a workaround to row? Thank you. Uh, Donna, interesting point. I haven't heard that said. So uh, let me look into it. I know that should Roe be overturned, it'll be up to the states. So in Wisconsin already, we've heard people say there'll be um, uh, abortion clinics available just across the state line in Illinois. But still, for many people, that's not convenient. That's not able to address their lives. And, you know, that's why Roe versus the Wade was the law across the land. Um, but I, I don't know the answer to your question. I think it's an interesting one, and I'll look into it. But, you know, there still would be state by state. And I think, you know, it would be addressed like the situation in Illinois, where it may not be very far from Wisconsin, but for many people, that's still too far. If I can, Tom, two updates. The woman who asked about uh, Georgia specifically, about youth, uh, mm -hmm. there's New Georgia and there's Fair Fight are two different groups in Georgia she may want to look into uh, that are doing what she was asking about. And the bill, while it's in HR1, the automatic voter registration, there's also a separate bill that David Cicilline has, and that's HR 2301. So if people want to reach out to their members of Congress and ask them to be a sponsor, uh, 2301 is the, the automatic voter registration bill. That's great. And thank you for the favor. I'll give you mine. I constantly mix up Oklahoma and, and Montana, but I'm pretty sure Stitt, Kevin Stitt is the governor of Oklahoma. And he just, and they've got 40 different Native American communities, tribes, independent nations in that state. And he just came out and said, if any of them try to run abortion clinics, he's going he's gonna to go after them. But apparently, they, everybody believes that they may well have the right to do that. So uh, something to look into, and we'd love to hear from you, and let, you know, when you do your research on that the next time you drop by. Absolutely. Okay, Gary at Kansas City, Kansas, you're on the air with uh, Congressman Pocan. 
Yes, Congressman. Uh, since there's some evidence that monopoly power can lead to or contribute to inflation, and since there's also some evidence that monopoly power can contribute to fascism, like a 1930s fascism in Germany, does Congress have any plans to strengthen our uh, antitrust laws? First of all, Gary, you are exactly right. I mean, whether it be the price gouging on gasoline, the the price gouging that we're paying in the grocery store uh, and meat packing, um, the issue with formula again is another monopoly industry where that's part of the problem we're facing. Uh, we have to go after this. There has been a bill that has gone through the Judiciary Committee on this, and it had an interesting mix. A few Republicans joined the more progressive Democrats. And some of the Democrats were with the more corporate Republicans on this, so it's an interesting mixture. But you're absolutely right. And uh, there's a really great book out there by uh, Matt Stoller called Goliath that you might want to look at uh, to even read more about this. But you're, you're dead on to many of the biggest issues facing us right now are really around uh, antitrust law and monopolies. And there's a book a uh, guy I know wrote uh, called The Hidden History of American Monopolies. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> there you go. Steve in Phoenix, Arizona, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Congressman, uh, uh, quick uh, local note, uh, former Madisonian here, um, spoken before. Uh, sorry to see Smokey's on University Avenue closing. Many good memories and meals there over the years, and Young took care of us so well for for many years. But my, my question is, can you do something about the national do not call list? We have far too many spam calls coming into our homes and stuff across the country. And if you could do something, that'd be appreciated. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Yeah, I hear you, Steve, on uh, both fronts. Uh, Smokey's Town was a classic uh, old supper club and the best uh, tradition of Wisconsin supper clubs. And, you know, we don't have a lot of those anymore, but they're uh, very much a part of upper Midwest, uh, I think, living in history. Sweet. And, um, you know, specifically around the no-call list, I mean, I think what happens is people keep finding new ways around the current laws that are out there. And that's what we were always trying to plug those holes. I know most recently I've gotten calls from they must know entities that I, I feel like I've talked about that day and I get a call and it's a spam call with a, a warranty, uh, extended warranty for my car or whatever fake call that's out there. Um, it is a bit of a whack-a-mole. The good news is at least we've got people in consumer agencies now, unlike during the Trump uh, administration. But I, I completely hear you about your concern on that, Steve. Well, also their, uh, the computer technology that allows them to spoof who they're calling from in some cases makes it impossible to just even enforce the law. I mean, you know, that's, it's really a problem. Um, Congressman, we have 30 seconds. It's you know, too little to throw somebody else on the air. Uh, thoughts on the coming weeks? Yeah, I'll tell you, um, the main thing I think is just gearing up for November. You can tell it's happening and Roe versus Wade, you know, we can't lose our personal freedoms, whether it be that or marriage equality or anything else. We have to be as active as possible and, and be out there. And uh, we're gonna fight those headwinds on inflation and things. But I think I've mentioned many talking points today. There's many more out there. We just have to be talking to our neighbors and making sure people know how important November is. I, I can't stress that enough. So it's all a matter of uh, let's get active. Let's find great organizations. Let's hook up with the local Democratic Party. Let's make sure that everybody's registered to vote, right? Yeah, people agree with us. Let's make sure they get out to vote. There you go. Congressman Pokian, thank you so much for dropping by. Great talking Absolutely. with you. Absolutely. Thank you, as always. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today, we're reading from the last hours of ancient sunlight. This is page 176. 
With few exceptions, most Native American cultures did not have our notions as part of their collective mythos. Instead of the story that we're separate from creation and born to dominate it, these older cultures held a different view of the place of humans in the order of creation. They believe we are part of the world. We are made of the same flesh as other animals. We eat the same plants. We share the same air, water, soil, and food with every other life form on the planet. We are born into life by the same means as other mammals, and when we die like them, we become part of the soil that will nourish future generations. They also believe it is our destiny to cooperate with the rest of creation. Every life form has its special purpose in the grand ecosystem, and all are to be respected, they believed. Each animal and plant has its own unique intelligence and spirit. We are permitted to compete with other plants and animals, but we may not wantonly destroy them. All life is absolutely as sacred as human life. Although hunting and killing for food are part of nature's order, when we do so, it must be done with respect and thankfulness. Older cultures are most often cooperators, not dominators. There are human cultures who do not engage in the destruction of the world. They demonstrate that destruction and domination are not an inevitable part of human nature. Prior to the emergence of younger cultures about 7,000 years ago, the anthropological record shows that not one culture believed itself to be separate from and superior to nature. We find the remnants of these older cultures and tribal people around the world, such as the San, the Kogi, the Ik of uh, Uganda, the Navajo, the Hopi, the Cree, the Ojibwa, living in harmony with the world around them, the people around them, and seeing all life as sacred. The San Bushmen don't even qualify as Stone Age, since they've never used stone implements, only tools made from wood. And yet they were successfully pursuing their way of life 40,000 years before Aristotle, and they still are. They leave behind few traces as they are such masters of resource management. That's sustainability. And contrary to the stories of our culture, it was and is often a happy and comfortable life. When we lived like that thousands of years ago, we enjoyed cradle-to-grave security. The tribe took care of itself. If anybody had food, everybody had food. If anybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent, everybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent. The measure of wealth in such societies was security. Medians of exchange like money were unnecessary. The idea of hoarding food or other things was unthinkable because everybody was responsible for everybody. Our ancient ancestors lived in the way of all other cooperator societies in nature, but be they the society of wolves or chimpanzees or prairie dogs, they looked out for one another. Our ancestors, people like you and me of all races and all continents, lived like this all over the world for 40 to 200,000 years, depending on whose archaeology you accept. And then there were eruptions among traditional cultures. In some parts of the world, people began to move away from their hunting and gathering lifestyle by experimenting with agriculture. This created more efficient food production, thus increasing their numbers and giving some people the ability to hoard food, the beginning of what we call wealth. Then a subgroup of the agriculturalists began experimenting with a new cultural idea of coercive or forced evangelism, of bringing others into their culture in a way that had never been done before. Their gods told them that if, if they couldn't evangelize others, then they should utterly destroy them. They were a very few, probably not more than a dozen tribes, which arose out of the tens of thousands of tribes that populated the planet. And this small number of tribes proceeded to wipe out and displace and destroy the thousands of other tribes who were living in a sustainable, peaceful, and connected to nature way. They left the garden and began to create dominating city-states and then empires. They were the first people infected with Wetziko, the origin of our younger culture. And because of this, they had become more efficient at increasing their own numbers. They had more sunlight under their own personal control. Of course, there was a price to pay for this. While the San, Kogi, Ik, and other native peoples may spend 
less than two to four hours a day gathering food and attending to the needs of life, and due to this day, by the way. In younger culture societies, this balance was radically shifted as average people must work longer and harder just to survive. Those who were the dominating individuals in the culture, however, could live luxuriously and work less and less. So for every person who only worked an hour or two a day, another person would have to work four or eight or 10 hours a day or more. Without massive exploitation of resources or theft from others, for every person with 10 times as much wealth, 10 people must have only one-tenth as much. Social and economic classes were born, and the first governments came into being to define, order, and control the socioeconomic structure and help the wealthy maintain and increase their riches. Whether they knew it or not, these governments, mostly kingdoms in the early days, transmitted younger culture values to all citizens, rich and poor. The power brokers of this time programmed the consciousness of their subjects, just as our governments, educational institutions, and mass media do today. Nobody knows what brought about the first eruption of Wetsuko cultural insanity, but logic suggests it was most likely happened in places where food resources were only cyclically abundant. For example, the Tinglet and Weida Native American tribes of the Pacific Northwest in the area around Vancouver Island were apparently extensive traders and owners of slaves. And this was because they could store food. This, this is where it all began, beginning wealth. Anyhow, the book is The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. This is just a small dip into it. A shocker, a bit of shocker news. No, not really, but shocking. Remember when Tyson Foods and Smithfield Foods, the largest or maybe second largest meatpacking operation in the United States, owned by the Chinese government, they export an awful lot of their products to China, which is you know, why Trump forced them back to work with an executive order. It was the only executive order he did of this sort to break the pandemic. Well, it turns out that that executive order was actually drafted by the corporation itself, by Tyson Foods. A story by uh, Madison McVann in TennesseeLookout.com. Lawyers for, tennis, for Tyson Foods, one of America's largest meatpacking companies, drafted an early version of this 2020 executive order. The meatpacking industry leaders understood the threat the coronavirus posed to their employees, emails show. But rather than enforcing safety measures, such as social distancing and masking, say they, they could have just you know, spent a few uh, thousand or hundred thousand dollars you know, making the assembly lines, you know, slowing them down a little bit, spacing people out, giving them masks so that they didn't, you know, get sick and die. Instead, they went to Trump and they said, force them back at gunpoint. Rather than enforcing safety, back to this article from, uh, from TennesseeLookout.com, but rather enforce, than enforcing safety measures such as social distancing and masking, the companies instead asked the federal government to exclude them from public health measures meant to um, uh, prevent uh, employee deaths. The USDA did it during the Trump administration. Uh, James Clyburn says, uh, Congressman Ch Clyburn from South Carolina, he says, the shameful conduct of corporate executives pursuing profit at any cost during a crisis and government officials eager to do their bidding regardless of the resulting health to the public must never be repeated. And this is where it, it gets you know, particularly grim as a result of this, just in one meatpacking plant, this was Foster Foods, 392 employees contracted coronavirus and eight died. That's just one of dozens. And this was all being run by political appointees in the USDA, the FDA, and the Department of Labor. Trump didn't care about working people.
In fact, I would argue Trump hated working people unless they were voting for him. He wanted to make sure that the billionaires who were running the meatpacking plants and Smithfield Foods, the Chinese-owned company that is <laughs> one of the larger uh, polluters in America and shipping an awful lot of product off to China, was getting exactly what they wanted. And he gave it to them. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 